Welcome to the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. The rise of AI presents important legal and ethical challenges for society. In this podcast, we invite leaders from different industries and creators of new AI to debate the big questions. This is the AI Asia Pacific Institute podcast. In today's podcast, we are welcoming Jake and Alan. Jake Taylor has been doing research in quantum information science and quantum computing for the past two decades, most recently at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. In addition to his research, he spent the last three years as the first assistant director for quantum information science at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, where he led the creation and implementation of the National Quantum Initiative and the COVID High Performance Computing Consortium. Now taking a year as a TAPP Fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Jake is looking at how lessons learned in implementing science and tech policy for an emerging field can enable public purpose in other areas. He is the author of more than 150 peer-reviewed scientific articles, a fellow of the American Physical Society and the Optical Society of America, and recipient of the silver and gold medals from the Department of Commerce. He can be found on Twitter at quantum underscore Jake and at www.quantumjake.org. Alan Ho is a lifelong engineer and entrepreneur. He has worked at a number of large and small technology companies that deployed artificial intelligence in their products. He is currently the product management lead at Google's quantum AI team. His responsibilities include the identification of applications of quantum computing that can benefit society. With you now, our host for this podcast, Kelly Forbes. Jake and Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So before we make a start, um, maybe I will... Um, Give you guys some time to introduce introduce yourselves, introduce your work. Um, there is um, we're going to focus our conversation on a recent article that's being published by you, and the intersection of AI and social media. So before we make a start on that, maybe I can invite you, Jake, to share a little bit more about yourself and your work. Sure. So my name is Jake Taylor. I'm a theoretical physicist by training, and I've been working in the last several years in the science and technology policy space. In this last year, I'm a fellow at Harvard's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, where I've been investigating how we can try and integrate public purpose into technologies as they're developed. And in the space of emerging technologies, artificial intelligence is of course a critical emerging technology Artificial intelligence isn't just a thing. It's actually many, many different things. And we're going to see some tremendous changes as a consequence. And so I was very excited to when Alan reached out to start talking about this space. And now I'm going to pass to Alan to introduce himself. Hi, my name is Alan Ho. 
Uh, I'm a product management lead in the Google's quantum AI team. Um, and I'm also been thinking about AI and kind of the technology impacts, uh, how, how it impacts society quite a bit as well. I've been working on machine learning ever since I graduated uh, university and I'm applying it to more of the scientific, I mean, sorry, more of the engineering fields like semiconductor process control, things of that sort. But I think now uh, artificial intelligence has a large impact on our society. And there's kind of a lot of open questions that we have uh, that I I'm really uh, appreciate exploring with folks like uh, Jake. Uh, and I would also like to clarify that the opinions that I'm going to be um, discussing here are of my own and not of uh, the Google uh, quantum team or Google on a whole. And in a similar vein, the views I'm talking about are my personal views and are not representative of those of the United States government. Thank you both. Um, thank you for the introduction. So I think a good place for us to start is perhaps by um, diving into some of these challenges on the intersection of social media and AI. So you've touched on a few examples in the piece that you've published. Um, so I'm not sure who wants to jump in this first um, and give us a little brief on the things that we need to start thinking about around this challenge. Sure, I'll take this one. How about that, Jake? So, um, you know, uh, if AI fundamentally is enabling us to have new forms of communication with different people, especially people that are outside of our network. And so I think like for social media, kind of the V1 of social media, most of the interactions and the information you interact are with directly people that you know, either your connection or one connection away. And what AI has been able to do is, is to drive engagement with people that are not just within your social circle, but people who are much further out of your social circle. People that may align with your views and uh, also not align your views. Uh, and it's kind of interesting how that, you know, as <clears throat> because a lot of the monetary aspects of social networks is driven by engagement. There's always a desire to drive more engagement uh, with these platforms. And that's not necessarily a good thing, especially from a uh, perspective of, um, you know, uh, people's mental health, uh, understanding what is true, what is not true. And so I think like there's a lot of, uh, this is kind of the problem is like, how should we use AI specifically to, um, how, 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 should we, how should we manage AI so that with the harms associated with AI uh, does, not, does not come about? And I think I really have to credit it to Jake is that instead of thinking about it in terms of just risks and thinking about it as in terms of the downsides of AI, think about it in the concrete harms that AI can create. Um, uh, and this is a mechanism by which uh, government can more effectively come in uh, and help uh, be part of the solution. And I'd like to sort of you know, add there that there's a lot of optimism, I think warranted optimism, that the tools of artificial intelligence are going to be a very positive opportunity for humanity as a whole. But there's a saying, it's not our first time at the rodeo. 
if you look at other emerging technologies, a consistent theme is that the unintended consequences of the technology are something that we have to not only work hard to get to in the first place, but then work hard to integrate into society in a positive way. And when I say it's not our first rodeo, the point is that in the past, we have had opportunity to try to address the ills technology brings by understanding what the harms are and getting in front of them before they take over. So the other benefit, uh, I think, uh, of starting from the perspective of enable and mitigate harm is that the existing regulatory frameworks within, for example, the United States and also in other countries around the world are already aligned with that set of principles. And so if there is a cogent, well-described approach that you can take there, it becomes something that can be more easily implemented. I guess my, you know, my overall sense though is, and I wanna, I'm gonna return to this, is that we are at a liminal time with respect to the artificial intelligence systems that are being developed. This transition is not immediate. It's just been happening for the last 10 years and will happen for at least 10 years more. And I guarantee you, it'll be more transformative in areas we didn't expect and less transformative in areas we think it's going to change. I don't know what they are. And so yeah. in this piece and what we're thinking about, it's not about being prescriptive. It's about setting up the mechanisms, pathways and people so that as the technology develops, we can find the ills that are being caused. And as I said, get in front of them. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, point there. And I feel that the very fact that we don't know where those areas are, are at the same time, very fascinating and, and terrifying because uh, we can only really prepare for this uh, by having you know, these conversations and trying to mitigate those risks and, and challenges that have been described in the piece. Um, and I feel that um, we're now having, like you said, this is a very timely conversation because we are having now the opportunity to uh, touch on these very difficult questions that we still have a chance and opportunity to, to mold it and, and shake it where we wanted to shake it, right? Yeah, and I think uh, talking about unintended, I mean, when I talk to a lot of my friends in the technology industry, they're, you know, they're equally baffled by what has happened. Um, it's very hard to predict. I mean, like, especially people who've uh, been in the internet for, or, or pioneers of the internet, you know, the idea was, oh, you should be able to connect with more people. So you should be able to understand other people's perspective uh, and, and didn't kind of uh, realize that, you know, we are fundamentally very tribal, unfortunately. And AI is a mechanism by which we can continue being more tribal. And there's actually a lot of studies showing that people who use social media for a significant amount of time become more and more polarized over time, right? So I think like these kind of negative effects, <laughs> these kind of negative effects in some sense, 
it, it might not be AI's doing, but it could be amplified by AI. I mean, this is kind of uh, looking at a lot of this. It could make it become more of uh, internet addiction, uh, and there's multiple aspects of it. So I think like there's just an opportunity to. Uh, there's always such. There's a lot of uh, like people say. There's always too much of a good thing, right? Uh, there might be mechanisms by which um, uh, you know we can we can manage these harms just like other other types of harms. Uh, one example that has been suggested is you know having just like how like uh, tobacco. It took many 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 years and decades for us to realize the negative harms of tobacco. But eventually, when people realize that smoking is unhealthy, they would create warning signs. They would create warnings. Uh, some of them fairly graphic. Uh, they would impose different mechanisms by which uh, to discourage the overuse of of um, of, uh, of cigarettes. Uh, and that has had a it's it's that kind of government intervention um, through years of research too that has actually resulted. In you know significantly reducing uh, the harm, specifically lung cancer, uh, due to uh, due to tobacco. So we may need to have to take somewhat of a similar approach. I'd like to you know follow that on by just saying there there are other similarities, right? And one of the reasons that we're talking about the intersection of artificial intelligence and social media is that the premise that humans would curate your social network, which is how we have lived as society for millennia, is not compatible with scaling a company in the modern era. And so companies have perforce used various machine learning techniques, which we categorize under these artificial intelligence systems, in order to be able to replace this sort of very slow organic approach to network growth that we experience in our lives as we're growing up and as we're going to school and going into work and the like with something that hopefully is an augment to that. You know, I believe that there is an optimistic outcome where it is an augment, but at the same time, there can be negative ramifications. And one of the challenges that you run into when you talk about making change is that it is not necessarily in the business interest of those companies to take a less scalable, more costly approach to that network curation. And so you have to ask yourselves, okay, so if we're going to impose these costs, first, who decides? Second, what mechanisms? Third, how do you enable innovation still while reducing those harms? And, and we, we kind of have a fourth point, which we don't talk about a lot here, but I, I think it's implicit, particularly in the United States when we talk about this, but also in other places around the world, that we have a set of norms about what it means to be interacting with others, about what it means for the government to be interacting with us. We call these often democratic norms. And so it's, it's not just you know, preventing individual harms. It's also about what are the norms in which we are going to live our lives? And are we going to let artificial intelligence systems dictate those norms? Are we going to dictate those norms? What is the harm that can come when those norms are 
not followed. And, and of course, we've seen some of the challenges of that in science fiction from 50 years ago, and more recently in the real world, as surveillance state opportunities start to really emerge. So it's a complex web that is being handled. And the answer isn't just get rid of social media, because it has, it has positive benefits, but the answer has to be something else. Yeah. So to digest all of that, I think uh, you propose some uh, solutions around, um, you know, solving this cycle that we are living in. Um, can I invite you to, to share what some of those bills? So I think Jake just mentioned that. And I think everyone would agree it's not that we need to completely destroy social media or or even, uh, you know, pause artificial intelligence um, developments uh, because there's a great potential for good here as well, if correctly used. So what are some of the, what are some of the measures that we can think about in terms of um, molding this uh, current situation? Oh, Jake, why don't you take this one? I think uh, I have some comments yeah. after that, but I think why don't you take this one? So one of the things that we talk about in this, in this piece, which is kind of a, a more detailed read in some of these things, is first, in order to identify harms, we actually have to be studying what's harmful. And so if you look at the research and, and effort that's going into examining how people's lives are being changed by these AI systems, one could argue, and I think we do argue, that it's actually not enough. And there's microcosms of that knowledge out there. Uh, everything from, in certain small communities, a skyrocketing of suicides, um, in other areas, uh, substantial reporting, self-reporting of unhappiness or of isolation. So we know we have you know, preliminary data of that nature. That research has to be sustained and has to continue to be integrated into sort of part two, which is policy generation, right? So recognizing the harms that are occurring at the individual level and empowering the government, non-governmental agencies and other entities to use their existing authorities to act on those identified harms. And then I think that the, the last point is that this sits in some sense of political calculus. When I talk about politics, it's politics with a little p. It's, it's talking about the fact that if you ask who decides what's good for society, in the democratic society, the answer is we do. We the people. And so I think when I talk about these different mechanisms and I talk about the research, but then also turning into policy, I'm really thinking about policy generation through a democratic process and, and one that is continuously done, refactored, you might say, and maintained as our body politic continues to evolve. I think that the last thing is the sort of self-regulation component. So you have identified harms, you have an ongoing knowledge of what's happening in those spaces, long-term longitudinal studies, developing how society is changing for positive and for ill, how individuals are reacting. 
And I believe that companies will find both internal beneficial motive because it's right, but also profit motive to take advantage of that knowledge and adapt their products in a way that reduces those harms. And so sort of there's this voluntary component, which you can add to the regulatory component that we talked about, which might end up being the most beneficial portion of it all. Um, I think that those are kind of the three different aspects in the personal harms space that we've been thinking about. We're not talking so much about some of the other harms that can arise associated with misinformation, destruction of the social fabric, in part because uh, those are harder to study and harder to identify specific harms for. Doesn't mean that there aren't harms there, just as more challenging. But I think Alan has a, some more cogent thoughts on this. Go ahead, Alan. Yeah, and um, you know, in terms of, uh, so we discussed about like different mechanisms by which uh, regulation can, I mean, um, different mechanisms to help improve mental health. So for example, you know, if you're using social media for a significant amount of time or you're posting quite a bit, you know, there's always an option for, uh, you know, these applications to mention that and, and let the person reflect that they are using the software quite a long time. Uh, and I think like there's actually a huge opportunity here. It's like, this is not, um, and the, the opportunity, I think, from a financial standpoint is that for these companies is that if you could truly create a social network that is driven by AI with positive outcomes, positive mental health, um, that is a superior product. And I think by having a superior product, uh, you're going to, uh, especially one that takes in factor in mental health, this is going to actually uh, make parents, um, other societies, uh, other, other markets that this particular company, particular company wants to get into, et cetera, uh, more accessible. So I think there's actually a large uh, opportunity here. And maybe just as a, a proof point is, uh, is actually in China. Uh, so one of the aspects is um, there are algorithms, especially in computer games, especially social-based computer games, that are highly addictive. And uh, one company that is very much uh, a publisher of these games uh, is Tencent. And it's kind of interesting that even after, uh, and there was a lot, it's actually, there was a point in time that the stock market value of Tencent dropped significantly because there was um, a talk about that they first banned, they actually stopped the games being released uh, while the government had some chance to kind of catch up. And actually after they imposed all these new restrictions uh, specifically on how long individuals complain, uh, sorry, can play, uh, Tencent's up 120% in market capitalization. So it's, it's not like these kinds, it's not like putting in restrictions is automatically bad for business. It could actually, it's actually could be a forcing function to make the products even better and even better use. And, and even if you have to compress the amount of engagement, you could have higher quality engagement. And I think that is ultimately a better product for society and will help companies reap economic gains in the long-term future. Excellent. So to your point uh, on, you know, this opportunity that we have now for some organizations to develop a superior product, right? Um, I think it's uh, probably timely that we bring the conversation around monopolies, right? And how 
I think the biggest challenge that we see now in industry is that there isn't much space for other organizations to come in with innovative ideas, um, you know, with a superior product or with, um, you know, um, a platform, for example, that will, um, you know, make a priority the mental health of communities and, you know, also think of the strategies that you just mentioned that. Um, it's really great to know that, you know, there is a, there is a way around this. Um, but the question that we have is around how do we navigate the problem with monopolies, right? And I think it, it's something that you've touched on your piece as well. Yeah, so, you know, um, in terms of monopolies, uh, we could also think about it in the context of harm, right? Um, you know, uh, monopolies often uh, abuse market power. They set higher prices, underpay employees, stifle innovation. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the governments, um, especially in capitalist countries, uh, use antitrust regulation as kind of the last resort for this. But, you know, I, I, would, I would just be a little bit wary and say, uh, like, you cannot automatically assume an, a monopoly is harmful. Um, and then also the other thing that we need to kind of understand is like, where, where, what is the root cause of a monopoly? Where, where, does it, where does it come from? And if you kind of like look back in history, I think the, the 1920s is actually a very good opportunity to look at this because especially in America, you had companies like Standard Oil uh, that um, had monopoly on the rails. You know, the, the whole term owning the rails came from that time. And they were very effectively broken up. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, businesses flourished after that. Whereas other monopolies, uh, such as the uh, phone system, was not broken up immediately. Um, and it, in fact, it would have been a very negative thing to break it up uh, at that time, because there certainly was, there just was not the technology to enable a telephone network that did not under, that did not operate under a, 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 um, um, uh, a single umbrella. Uh, and that's because the technology was evolving very, very quickly. So it's, it's, it's so the, the, the net, the, 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 the net net of this is that, you know, companies, uh, you know, kind of industries, that have uh, network effects, uh, regardless of what kind of network effects there are, uh, have this tendency to drive towards these uh, natural monopolies. Uh, and then the question is, what do you do with it? Uh, it it's, it, is it possible to like break it up just like standard oil? Uh, or is it not? Or do we have to wait? And do we have to do something in the meantime while we're waiting? And that's still a very, very open question that we need a lot of experimentation in. Let me kind of add a more specific example when we're talking about what you might call AI enablement of monopoly. And for me, it connects to what is often called platform companies as, as a great example of how this can go one way or the other. Because what's happening in a platform situation is that you are saying, I'm creating this piece of infrastructure that's gonna connect different people together, to connect buyers and sellers, connect this and that. And there's a lot of benefits when you create a marketplace infrastructure piece to have as big a marketplace as you can, as many players in the marketplace as you can. 
And so there's a natural business drive to try and accumulate towards monopoly in those settings. It doesn't always end that way, right? So for example, we have multiple stock exchanges. That's not a monopoly in part because there's some specialization that arises and it keeps them sufficiently separated apart. But one of the issues, particularly with artificial intelligence is the things that we as humans think about as, oh, that's different than this is often a limitation of our thinking process, but not something that we can't build a machine now that can get beyond that limitation. So the ability to automatically aggregate across what appear to be dissimilar sectors using the same technique. So as an example, the way Amazon does, took its books algorithm and applied it to many other long tail products, starts to showcase that these machine learning systems, these, these assistants, open up new monopoly opportunities that may not fit within our existing, is it infrastructure, is it harmful balance that we look at when we look at antitrust. And uh, you know, I think that it's there's different aspects of monopoly also associated with lock-in and, and other things. I mean, it's kind of a complicated story, but at some level, you know, we have to make some choices as a society is what's going to be acceptable and how do we enable it? Maybe in an AI enabled world, what we mean by monopoly changes, or maybe there's another word that comes to describe this sort of platform domination. But nonetheless, we can recognize whether we call it a monopoly or not, that it can be harmful. And when we do so, again, we can return to a political process, at least in democratic countries, in order to balance the sort of benefits you can get from good application of capital with the harms it can cause to the nation. Uh, let me uh, kind of build upon what uh, Jake was saying. I used to, and just for a disclosure, I used to work uh, on at Amazon, specifically on the marketplace. I would uh, actually, one of my big accomplishments was helping Amazon establish seller marketplaces in other countries. Uh, one of the kind of like the, 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 the challenges that, you know, you hear a lot of complaints is, oh, Amazon owns the marketplace and it's a seller. So that means that it has all the data of all the other sellers out there. It has this competitive advantage. That's just unfair. You know, we should just not allow Amazon to be a seller on the marketplace. Right. But then there's kind of nuances that occur. Right. So. For example, when a mar when uh, when uh, Amazon wants to own, to break into a new marketplace area, let's say it was doing you know women's products, uh, you know books, and it wants to break into baby products, right? Uh, and wants to create a marketplace. Uh, the problem is is that you have this like bootstrapping problem, whereby the only play reason why people AKA seller, sorry, the only reason why sellers would ever want to go to a marketplace is because there are consumers in that particular category. And those consumers generate data, which create great recommendations so that if you're in a category like babies, sorry, like uh, books, you would see relevant, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, recommendations to push you to the new babies category. So how do you bootstrap that? It's, it's very hard. And so 
a lot of times Amazon ends up having to be the first seller in that particular marketplace and sometimes take a loss in order to generate enough data for creating useful recommendations, right? And then the sellers would come over. And, and actually you would use C is that, uh, it, and this depends, this is a global, this is, this is actually dated uh, several years ago. So I don't know if this is still the case. What you would see is that after Amazon, the seller goes into a particular marketplace, it would kind of pull out of that marketplace as the dominant seller and try to let other, the other sellers kind of compete among themselves. So this is a mechanism. So by, by blanket saying that you can't, uh, you can't be a seller on the platform actually in some sense penalizes uh, uh, the ability for let's say Amazon to go into another marketplace. Now the flip side of the problem is that you might say, oh, you know what? I don't want Amazon to go into different marketplaces, but then you start end up having an inferior product. So it might be another company that creates, that goes in that category, let's say babies, but in order for that category to be a well, well um, to be well populated, you still need a mechanism to transfer, to, to provide recommendations. So the sharing of information, especially customer aggregated, uh, customer aggregated information is something that is very, very complicated. And it's not yet clear that we have all the technologies to do this in a very safe manner. So I think this is why it's, it's a very complicated, when you kind of dive into the technology and you try to figure out what is the right way to do things, you, you start ending hitting uh, technology limitations uh, that we have today. Yes, I think that's a very good point that we also need to be flexible with the process of thinking about whether monopoly is actually harmful. And in the beginning of the question, and I think what everyone is thinking about recently, when you think about monopoly in social media is in respect to one specific company that has you now purchased um, to other social platforms. And, um, you know, it's being established, I think, in different grounds um, that there has been, you know- You're talking harm. about Parler, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, but going a little bit to, to, to clarify that, I don't have a problem saying the word, uh, but um, to go to something that you discussed there, Jake, was around self-regulation, right? And I wanted to dive a little bit on that. So uh, there has been a recent uh, publication by uh, MIT reporter. I'm not sure whether you had a chance to go through that yet. Oh, Karen Howe's uh, beautiful she, piece, yes. Correct, yeah. She yeah. had the opportunity to spend uh, some time inside Facebook um, analyzing the uh, activities and the fact that they've actually, you know, established a Center for Responsible AI internally to think about these uh, challenges, um, you know, given the recent news. So, um, and I feel, well, to, to go to her conclusion, uh, at the end, her conclusion is that there's no way but for us to encourage regulation to solve these bigger problems. Um, we cannot rely on, on self-regulation on that angle anymore. So yeah, it would be great to have- I actually have uh, three um, responses to that. First of all, it's a great piece. And in fact, we talked about it across our, our technology and public purpose project when it came out. Um, second of all, 
the, when we talk about self-regulation, I, I, I actually don't really believe that self-regulation is a thing. I do believe that uh, companies will choose to re add restrictions to impose constraints in part because they believe it'll be a better product and in part because it will prevent a more egregious action happening, but that's more prophylactic than regulatory. And I think the last point, and this is something which is a, maybe a point of disagreement between Karen's take and mine, is it is important, even if you wanna just make all the money you can and don't care about ethics, to have the team thinking about the ethics. And one of the reasons I mentioned that, it's not just important for capitalism, it's important for society, but you need both, uh, is simply, and this is the thing that maybe those who don't do research may not appreciate, when you set out to do research, in some fundamental sense, the definition of doing research is you don't know the answer. So what we want to encourage in those settings is yes, please dedicate resources to researching ethical AI, even if you're going to use it for ill, but publish the results so that others can learn from your mistakes. Transparency. Anyway, so I just want to say that's kind of a three nuances on that particular element of it. Mm -hmm. Alan, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I think uh, fundamentally, right? Like, uh, why why do governments enjoy? Uh, sorry, what 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 makes a, a functioning economy is a level playing field, uh, and I think this is why a lot of companies are uh, now encouraging regulation uh, because what they care is um, the, what they care is a level playing field. And I think this is, again, uh, why self-regulation isn't, um, uh, isn't uh, practical too, is because by saying you're, do you're doing self-regulation, that means that your playing field is inevitably going to be unfair because not everybody is going to self-regulate. And that makes the economies uh, not function properly. So I think this is this is why I think like the government, uh, especially when it comes to like reaping the benefits of AI, I think private markets are actually pretty damn good at it. Uh, even for very long term uh, projects, like maybe even quantum computing, uh, the private markets have invested quite a bit in it. But when it comes to kind of like uh, uh, you know. Uh, doing things that are um, uh, around regulation or impeding growth, <laughs> Mark, uh, the, you know, private markets aren't good at it. And what they rely on the government to do is help level the playing field. So I, I, this is kind of my take on why self-regulation doesn't also work. I just would add to that, and, that, that uh, there are these negative externalities Right, the things that uh, are the costs of doing business that are not a monetary cost and not something that the business themselves see. And so, you know, this when you look at the level playing field, it's not just level, but also the externalities have to some extent been incorporated. Anyway, please continue, Alan. Um, yeah, and, and I would just like kind of add that, like, um, 
Uh, I would I would just add that even though I said that a technology might not be as uh, we might not have the technology today, and you did actually mention Facebook, I would actually mention that um, they are very they're they're probably very concerned about um, they've been burned, they've been burned by trying to be a platform, namely like Cambridge Cambridge Analytica. They've been burned. They've seen what can happen when these things are abused. Um, so uh, I, I would I have a little bit more sympathy for them. I will also note there's new technologies out there. I think uh, the one that I'm most excited about is a technology called differential privacy, which does allow um, sharing of uh, machine learning models actually in a privacy preserving way. Um, And I know both Facebook and Google and other companies, uh, Microsoft especially, have been investing a lot in this. The US government has been trying to use this for also the census as well. So I think like we may like this, 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 these kinds of AI enabled monopolies, it may be a, a phase transition. It may, it may, we just might be going through a period of technology maturation. So I think there's also a very big opportunity for government organizations such as the National Institute of Standards and Technologies to kind of help start putting together some frameworks by which you know, people can share information in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that uh, is privacy preserving. And then at that point, we may be able to apply uh, different uh, antitrust type, uh, antitrust or regulatory frameworks to prevent massive companies uh, from, uh, from taking up the entire market and allow best ideas uh, to flourish. Yeah. And I think that takes us to the next question, which is around education. So I think to accelerate and, you know, a big part of managing this process, it's going to be around building education, uh, which is happening slowly. I think in the industry, people are becoming more and more aware of how the data or how the certain platforms and technology in general is affecting them and uh, starting to be able to make better choices, right? Even even though right now we might not have a choice when it comes to certain, the use of certain platforms. Uh, But to build on that, uh, it is something that you both covered in your piece, how how education can help ethics in AI. Well, I'm a big fan of education and it has to do with several different aspects. Of course, one, I spent a lot of my life working either directly or indirectly in the education space as a professor, as a graduate student, as a postdoc, as an undergraduate research assistant, uh, wow. et cetera. But, but second of all, when we talk about education, you know, I have this very humanistic view that we're trying to educate people to be good humans. Yes, we want them to learn skills about AI. Yes, we want them to incorporate detailed technical knowledge about how to handle data, but we also want them to understand what it is to be human. And part of that is civics, and part of that is ethics, and part of that is other parts of humanities around you. And so when I think about what's happening and how we're trying to integrate the knowledge of data, of machine learning into systems, that we use to educate. And this goes all the way down to middle school in the United States and in other countries, and all the way up through advanced components 
and, and professional training. So those who are already working, coming back to pick up some new knowledge. But the connection between what it means to be human and what it means to actually do this very complex technical work is something that is rarely integrated. And we've seen some exceptions to that, which are very intriguing. Uh, and, and some of the times it turns out that a small ethics intervention can already lead to substantial positive outcomes. So I guess my take is that you want at each of these steps, sort of middle school level, the high school level, technical community college and professional training and, and, and undergraduate and beyond to have some interplay between the, the programs you write, the data you create, the data you use and its impact on people. And in different countries, that will mean different things. But if you don't teach that next order thinking about consequence, you can run into a problem, which is that people develop without consideration of next order consequence. And so I believe that we have been trying to do this in education for a very long time. And we have not always been succeeding. And every time a new area that requires a deeper investment of our time, thought, and knowledge comes up, we come back to it. We invest in figuring out how to teach that very complex thing. And then two things happen. And, and this is the very interesting thing, right? So the technology simplifies because we have better engineering tools, better ways of understanding it. So then we can re-inject in some respects that other parts of the training that are critical for the long-term success of that technology for humanity. And so I, I feel like we're catching up in the education space here with some of the great initiatives that are out there like Code for America and, and other such things. But while we catch up, it's an opportune time to include that higher order thinking. Very good. I, I really like that point about the need for us to think about what it means to be human. Um, there's a great book, which I'm sure you both have gone through, um, Homo Deus, that he goes through our evolution as humans and you know, the fact that we now have technology to solve so many of our problems. But the conclusion in the end is that that didn't necessarily make the quality of our lives better. Um, you know, so unless you actually shaping the tools to, for the better, it's not automatically that that will be the end of result, right? They used to say that by now, 2000, you know, 2020 was, which was last year, we were going to be working perhaps half of the time, uh, because we would have access to tech new technology that was going, you know, we're going to automate much of our work, um, and, at the end of the day, I feel that uh, we are now submitted to spend even more time in technology, either if you're working or you're scrolling through social media or, you know, relying on this, uh, perhaps sometimes very addictive tools that are not necessarily improving the quality of your life. Do you have anything to add to that, Alan? Yeah, I think um, the one thing that's a little different about AI than a lot of other technologies. Um, so, so actually, when you think about it, what kind of technologies have impact your life significantly? Health, right? 
Um, so it's very, it is not surprising that if you are studying to become a doctor, there is an extreme focus on ethics. Uh, and, you know, you have to take the Hippocratic oath, uh, things of that sort. So you like ethics top of mind all the way through your education process, right? And I think for computer science, the impact on society is not really, it has, it has impacted society, but I think now the level is getting to the point of what you may be thinking of for in the, in the, in the medical field as well. Uh, it's just so transformative. So I think it's, it's important to have to have to make your ethics education to be ca to be caught up with that uh, to be caught up with that, and I, I think just by and it's not surprising that a lot of people in the technology field are kind of caught flat-footed because they haven't been thinking about it. It hasn't been top of mind. And as as Jake said, you know maybe just w even one week of priming is enough to really help people um, think the uh, think these through. Um, in the engineering field in, in particular, not so much computer science, um, there are professional engineering societies, uh, specifically uh, in Canada, there's even a tradition where people would wear an iron ring uh, on their fingers to know that like, and this is coming from the civil engineering tradition that if you don't build a bridge properly, the bridge will actually fall down and, and that the piece of iron that was used to make those rings originally came from the bridge that actually fell down to remind people that your, uh, that your actions have consequences. And so we may need to kind of revive some of those traditions that we had before, uh, specifically for AI. So that's my thoughts around education aspect. I'd like to just right. follow that by saying um, that the, you know, the, the idea that software kills, it, it's been around, but software has been viewed as the tool and it's the profession that determines, right? So for example, in, in aviation, you have software and you treat it differently perhaps than you would when it's in the social media space. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I think Alan's point is, is just, is really resonant with me as well, that, that, you know, somehow we have to come to terms with the power that computers have, want, have wrought. And, and that, and that hasn't filtered through our society yet. Yeah. So in your piece, you, you mentioned, um, you know, three approaches that can be taken to enable public purpose to evaluate, you know, these harms in AI. Can you walk us through what they are, please? Why don't you take this one, Jake? Well, I'll do the high level. And then maybe Alan will, will dig in on some of the details. So just really high level, we kind of re recognize that there are some similarities in how you address that. And we kind of have a, a threefold path. So these are done contemporaneously. These are done in parallel. It's not you do one, then the next, then the next. But one path is research. And that is to build a better understanding of the troubles and to maintain that understanding as the situation continues to develop. The second is use various aspects of the political process to develop in concert with the public and with the stakeholders that are impacted by these technologies and are using and creating them 
the key recommendations and policies, which can then be used in the third portion, which is enforcement. You know, if you've identified specific harms and you have a set of recommendations, recommendations go out to the community, enforcement is around the harms and reducing and mitigating those harms. And so this, this, this is kind of a simple framework, but you know, kind of humorously, I've been talking to many people over the course of this year in fellowship. And sometimes they're just surprised to learn that sometimes what you need to do is talk to a lot of people, listen to a lot of people, synthesize that knowledge and develop recommendations from that. Like it's not AI, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's the political process. And, and yet nonetheless, that, that is really a powerful way in order to build that recommendations that can sustain. Yeah. So maybe to you... kind of illustrate that, like, for example, let's go back to the first example, uh, social media, right? Uh, social media and AI. From a research standpoint, we could rely on government agencies such as the National Institute for Mental Health and the National Fo Science Foundation to do these fundamental research uh, on the impacts of AI and uh, social media. Uh, we could develop um, committees and panels uh, between research uh, agencies and private industry. Uh, in the U.S. context, there's actually a national AI initiative uh, that is being uh, initiatives office that's being stood up as part of the uh, uh, executive branch, and uh, there's going to be an advisory committee. So we could leverage some of those capabilities for developing recommendations. And then finally, from a rec from an enforcement standpoint, you could leverage uh, the FTC, uh, that sorry, FCC, that focuses on regulating communications over networks. Um, this is applicable to even social networks. Uh, and then we could also rely on private industries, whether it be app stores uh, or the companies themselves for uh, self-regulation to make sure that those, uh, sorry, uh, for self-enforcement to make sure that those standards are set properly. So I think these are kind of the combination of these things we can do uh, to help uh, move the needle and trying to improve these, um, the use of AI in our society. Right, so it might be good if we move towards uh, talking about AI non-proliferation. So there's been a recently published US National Security Council AI final report that has some interesting views. Uh, we've discussed this um, earlier today and um, you know, they have some interesting references to AI ethics there and it's specifically about you know, coming to agreement with you know, between US, China and Russia on you know, some of these uh, challenges. And that I guess brings us to the conversation around the race for AI and how we have you know, bigger players there and how we can navigate um, navigate those challenges there. So I don't know if Ellen, do you wanna go first or Jake? Oh, yeah, I'll take this one. You know, um, the, uh, maybe I can just start off with a little bit of a story. Um, and this is actually a story of, uh, uh, this is an uplifting story. So, um, you know, Kind of, actually, during the heydays of the of the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually, uh, there was a situation where uh, you know Russia had their nuclear subs in um, uh, in in uh, U.S. waters, 
uh, or, uh, or near U.S. waters, one of those areas. Um, and typically, to launch a nuclear weapon, uh, you would need to have both. You would need the skipper's agreement and the, the captain's agreement to go to, 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 to launch these weapons. Uh, it just so happened that the Commodore, so who's he's kind of like the admiral of the fleet, so happened to be on one of these nuclear subs. Uh, and this was a very, very tense time. Uh, they were underwater. Uh, there were depth charges uh, blowing off like left, right, left, right, left, right. And uh, both the, kip, uh, the skipper and the, the captain decided to, uh, to launch a nuclear attack. Um, however, there was the Commodore, uh, his name's Vasily Akropov. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure, I hope I'm getting that right. He decided no. He didn't, he didn't think that that was what was going on. Uh, and he, he thought that he, he some, and, and by the way, this is, unfortunately, I don't have the exact sources for this. Um, so, so what he really realized is that the depth charges weren't actually uh, firing directly at the sub but rather they were firing off in a left-right, left-right pattern. And he kind of deduced that this is actually trying to indicate to the sub to surface, right? And thank God he said no, otherwise we'd be living in a big mushroom cloud, right? And I think this is kind of like a good question. It's like, would an AI be able to do that? that would is an, an AI have that social context, right? And so one of the, one of the very interesting things about that, the whole... Uh, the whole um, uh, report is that it actually, I mean, we, we talk about in the media, oh, this is a lot about great competition, but it's also talking about things that people could agree upon. And inside the report, uh, it clearly and publicly affirms that the U.S. policy is that only human beings can authorize the employment of nuclear weapons. And it specifically is asking to seek similar commitments from Russia and China. Right. So I think this is something that everybody can agree upon. And I'd like to take that a level further. I mean, my, my personal recommendation is that we go beyond just nuclear weapons, which are that, that seems like a no brainer. But we take it on to any kind of weapons that, that are offensive. Um, you know, we could we can talk about drones. But we could also talk about surveillance, too. If there's a mechanism by which we can have a human in the loop, I think that will significantly reduce the chances of, uh, of of harm. That is an amazing story there. And um, I recently heard that story. And um, I think he was actually awarded um, awards recently by the Future of Life Institute. Uh, Correct. Yeah. Mark, Mark Tegemark. Yeah. 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 Matt Tegemark. Not many, yeah. Not many people know of his, his work really. And, um, you know, it, it changed the course of history, right? Do you want to add anything to that, Jake? Well, yeah, I think that the when we talk about nonproliferation, what we're really talking about is setting a set of, of norms and ethics and, and agreements about what's allowed, you know, about, about what's acceptable. And we draw some analogies in nonproliferation to nuclear weapons, but also to bioweapons and other asymmetric weapons. Artificial intelligence systems are no doubt going to provide additional asymmetric opportunities and, and related challenges. And what we talk about in our piece is the idea that 
you know, action decisions really do require a human to be involved. It's different than in the corporate setting where you might want a human involved for legal liability issues or other things that we haven't really talked about. But this sort of sacred compact of defense is, is having to find the balance when politics has failed. And, you know, when the, the process of, of polite disagreement has failed. And we, in our estimation, don't believe it's in the interest of humanity to take that portion of the, of the story, take that portion of the decision process and put it in the hands of an artificial intelligence system. It's not just about nuclear weapons. It's about yeah. when our ability to have a conversation has failed. I've been reading a lot of Clausewitz recently, so that's a little bit <laughs> on me, but. Um... Yeah. Um, I think we're getting to a point where it might be good to wrap things up. Um, I always like to ask this question uh, and that is a very broad question and you can take it to any angle you might like, but it, what, is, what does the future hold in respect of AI? for you, your, your personal predictions? In the context of this conversation, I, I would probably say. So I, I would, uh, I, I'm actually thinking about how to uh, answer this kind of question. And, and, and one thing that I'm very, um, uh, especially because Jake is a physicist here, uh, that I'm personally looking forward to, which will actually help us force a lot of very interesting conversations in society is the first time that we award a Nobel Prize in sciences, whether it's physics, chemistry, or, um, uh, or biology, to an AI. Uh, and what I mean by that is that I, I, I'm waiting for the point that the, the per, the whatever, what makes that discovery uh, is... Uh, uh, it's probably going to always be, be a person, but the person is really, really more about being able to coax the right answer, uh, coax an answer from an AI, ask, feed in the right information to an AI, feed it in the right question, and coax a really, really interesting answer from it. Because that's going to actually really force us to kind of uh, truly, uh, it's not general AI, we know that that's not, that's not the case, but it will truly force us to reconsider our um, uh, uh, our relationship with artificial intelligence. I love that answer, uh, and, and I have to say, I'm also very enthusiastic about uh, artificial intelligence systems advancing the very art of what's possible in in science and in technology, but. I think in terms of this, this future across how artificial intelligence systems impact society and how we respond, you know, I think we haven't even developed the language that we will be using in 10 years to describe this space. Antitrust didn't exist as a language concept before 1900, right? Like, like it, it takes, we, and we're now building this language. Right, so I am enthusiastically optimistic that as a society, we will rise to this challenge. And the regulatory 
and business landscape is going to be quite different in these areas afterwards. And so I'm hopeful that what we've written down here is a few small steps that can help towards building that new language. But that's, that's what I see. Thank you both. This has been a fantastic conversation. Before you go, um, we will be sharing um, the article as part of releasing this podcast. There is an opportunity if you would like to share um, your email or any way in anyone can follow your work, whether it's Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and um, yeah, continue to follow your future publications or contributions. So I can be found uh, on Twitter at twitter.com slash quantum underscore Jake. And this policy piece and others that I work on can be found at quantumjake.org. Uh, and for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Carlin Ho. Excellent. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.